Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert DeGraff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're joined by Tassos Haniotis, the Director of Strategy, Simplification and Policy Analysis at DG Agri, the European Commission. Tassos has a long history in agricultural politics with a 15-year stretch in DG Agri, before that in the Cabinet of Franz Fischler, and before that did extensive university work in the US and the EU on agricultural economics. We're speaking on the morning after the FFA live event in Brussels on the 26th of October, where Tassos was present. Tassos, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome anytime. Uh, thank you. I just wanted to, to jump right in into some of the remarks you made. Yesterday's event was all about getting the price signal right. And I think what you said during the event was important that we have to be careful what we do with the price signal, especially at a time when people are struggling to pay regarding coronavirus and loss of jobs and a difficult economy. However, can we not also see this as an opportunity to, to move? I mean, the EU has just signed off on a pretty large aid package. There's money in the CAP. Is, is, now not, is this crisis also not the opportunity to, to change things more quickly than we could in other times? It is uh, clearly, uh, and in our view, also more of an opportunity than a challenge. Many of the challenges that we are discussing today were challenges that we have already identified when we made the proposal back in 2018 about uh, the future common agricultural policy. And certainly, we shouldn't have been waiting for COVID uh, to get a, an alarm about the very complex interrelationship between human activities, uh, health, environment, and especially climate. These were already uh, trends that were pretty negative in the past, and we were ready to make, and we made proposals to address them. What this particular situation does is it allows us to accelerate certain areas that are much more linked to the green and digital transformation, if you want. And we have seen that as a response to the COVID crisis, uh, digitalization is moving faster. With it, of course, what moves faster is the significant gap between those that apply digital solutions and those that are left behind. And this is one worry that is uh, particularly important in, uh, in the agricultural area, because uh, unlike other sectors of the economy, in agriculture, digital applications allow all sorts of practices, from organic to agroecology, all the way to conventional agriculture, to simultaneously increase their economic and their environmental efficiency and performance. But this applies to those that actually uh, have the knowledge of uh, these technologies. So what we need to do is focus on how we bridge the gap of knowledge that exists and the fears that sometimes uh, exist about these uh, new applications. And you would have noticed both in the uh, future cap 
proposal and especially in the forum to fork and the Green Deal, how, how much emphasis we have put in this digital transformation of our economies. Okay, let's let's dig into that a little bit. I think you and I, well, you would be more familiar even than I with the with the statistics. The average age of the European farmer is, I think, somewhere between fifty five and fifty seven now. Not all of them have very high incomes. Uh, many of them live in rural parts of the countryside that are still not very well connected with broadband internet, with fast internet. How does someone who manages, let's say, five hectares of mixed farming in somewhere in eastern Bulgaria become part of this digital transition? First of all, uh, maybe because I'm a little bit more familiar than you are, as you said, with statistics. If we were to go 10 years back, the average age of the farmers wouldn't have been 45. It would have still been 55. So we have to take into account some longer terms of demographics that are much more, uh, I mean, persistent throughout the world and not only the European agriculture. The average age of farmers is always uh, relatively high. Why? Because of uh, taxation, uh, inheritance laws, and other type of legislation that makes uh, the transfer into uh, new generations more complex. That's why we have put more uh, emphasis on trying to put measures that help generational uh, renewal. But the first question that every farmer in any part of the European Union should ask is, do I have, for example, a smartphone and what do I do with it? Some that would have smartphones are not going to have applications that are linked to their day-to-day -day farming activity, despite the fact that there might be broadband uh, in their particular area. This type of problem is very different with the answer that we're going to get. I don't have a smartphone because I don't, don't have a broadband. And we need to distinguish this. The first type of challenge is a challenge that requires a much better link of the farm advisory systems with research and applications on the ground. And we have seen that there are very diverse situations in terms of our advice in the different member states. And we need to bring everybody uh, to the same minimum level. There are always going to be some front runners. The other ones that are lagging behind need to learn from them. The second issue requires a lot of investment training uh, in uh, rural areas and to make sure that nobody is left uh, behind. Uh, to be clear, uh, whether digitalization advances or not will not depend on any of our policies going to go on the ground. What will depend on the application of uh, policies is how uh, many uh, people will manage to get into this process fast enough that would otherwise wouldn't be able to participate. And that's the role of uh, policies to address market failures and uh, help in the social dimension of uh, what we like to deliver. Okay, so let's turn to that um, support in case of market failure. One of the things that the next CAP will maintain to, to a large extent is income is primary income support for farmers. However, there's there is also more and more noise saying what we should no longer be doing essentially is be paying farmers per hectare with a number of ecological constraints that essentially public money should be spent on public goods. How do you see the balance between sort of the income support side, which is often so necessary and this need for more money for public goods in the next uh, CAP? and also certainly linked to the ambitions in the farm-to-fork and the Green Deal. 
First of all, allow me as uh, with the issue related to the average age of farmers so to clarify a couple of things that uh, we mix together. No matter how we're going, for what we're going to support farmers, the how is going to be through uh, hect per hectare payments. What is the alternative? Either to do it through prices or what other factors of production. We have labor, which is almost impossible to distinguish and measure. And we have seen that despite the very uh, you know, rich theoretical academic debate of moving to alternatives, we cannot have an army running after every individual farmer to measure what exactly they're doing. So there has to be some sort of per hectare payment. The real question there is whether this per hectare payment, the way it is distributed, reflects the realities of today and tomorrow. The answer is clearly not. And this answer we have been giving in successive impact assessments since 2008. We have been saying that we need to link the level of support that is given to farmers, first of all, to the opportunity cost of land, which is reflected by the rent rates, which are different in different regions, even within a member state, and to the opportunity cost of labor, which is reflected by the average wage. But that's up to member states to decide whether they do it this way or not. Second thing is, is it for income or not? And here we need to make clear that if we all agree that there are going to be market failures that wouldn't allow the market prices to clearly reflect the type of costs that are linked with the environmental footprint of agricultural production, there has to be a certain minimum level of income support. This has to be fixed for everybody, so it allows them to get the signals from the market of where the real trades are taking place, and also linked to certain uh, environmental and other conditions, which we, in our proposal, we wanted to increase uh, everywhere. Why is this important? Because when in, uh, in the focus that we're going to have in the recommendations of the strategic plans, we start looking at how the member states with their programs meet the ambitions of the Green Deal, uh, the farm to fork targets and the overall orientation of the future cap, we need to be able to find out exactly what is their starting point and make sure that everybody increases this level of ambition. The second point is how we target public money for the delivery of the public goods. So the first one also addresses the delivery of the private goods partially. And there, what we have done is we're shifting more money and more ways of distributing this money, the eco-schemes apply in the first pillar, for example, agro-environmental measures in the second pillar, to enhance exactly the practices that would make sure that this overall level of ambition will increase. So why do we still believe that there is a need to continue having a certain level of income support for everybody? Because this is a way to get all land into the, the system. What we would like to avoid is having some islands of agro-environmental uh, high performance, that these islands could be bigger tomorrow than what they are today, but still they're not going to be all of the land, while in the other part we're going to have even more intensive uh, ways of producing that we have today and more uh, negative uh, environmental uh, outcomes. Okay, so that, that brings us to sort of an interesting question. One of the new parts of the next CAP reform is a more... Member states will get more latitude within with their national strategic plans to devise different 
priorities and settings than, than their neighbors do. Now, one of the criticisms that is often said about this approach is that essentially what you are doing is fracturing the common agricultural policy as a European unit and essentially make it 27 agricultural programs, uh, to be sure, with, with clear oversight by the European Commission um, and also the need to approve these plans beforehand. Is there not a danger of fracturing and renationalizing policy and that once you give that out of hand, can you still get it back? Can it still become re-Europeanized, if you will? I mean, I, I wouldn't like to, to claim that there are no dangers of uh, you know, different member states uh, going their different ways. But what do we have to guarantee that this doesn't become a reality? First of all, we have a single market. And what we have forgotten is that in the past, when our system was based on price support, the level of intervention prices was the same across the European Union. Yet the level of market prices within every uh, member state was very different. Nobody at that time said that we didn't have a common policy, despite the fact that some would move products in intervention and others would never do it. It's, it's something like that today. Obviously, there are very significant differences in the structures of uh, agriculture of the member states, in the type of priorities they will have to do, because the problems that they have to solve are going to be different. What matters is to have the same set of practices and what matters even more, and that has been our effort uh, with this uh, proposal we made, to start measuring what we're doing, not measuring uh, how much we, money we spend in one or the other particular practice, which we will still do, but what exactly this particular practice has done as we try to measure it in the soil and the nutrient balance in the soil, in emissions, in uh, water, and also more in, uh, importantly than in the past, in, in biodiversity, where exactly the type of practices that are good for the soil or uh, reduce emissions automatically have a very beneficial impact on biodiversity on top of the specific measures that we have that address biodiversity more directly. I wanted to turn now to uh, so the other side of this picture. We talked about the price signal. We talk about the need for European policy to help farmers shift to a more sustainable path. But there's also a great role for, for the food chain and certainly for the, the consumer. And during the event yesterday, you mentioned that we have to educate consumers further about how their food is produced. Now, two episodes ago, we had Lawrence Haddad, uh, the executive director of the Gain Alliance and winner of the World Food Prize on. And he was much more skeptical about how much agency consumers have in when they make their choices, how much education they have and also how much they are willing to have. You know, we say we want to educate consumers. Are we not asking people to make rational individual choices and sort of ignoring the impact of limited food availability, advertising, all that? Well, one of the first things you learn uh, in uh, textbooks uh, of economics and uh, that we often forget in our day-to-day -day practice as policymakers is that for markets uh, to function, you need to have perfect information. We will never reach perfect information, but clearly there is plenty of scope of increasing the information that consumers have about what they consume, how it has been produced, and what are not only the impacts on uh, the environment and on uh, climate action, but also on their diets. And here, the first thing that we have to do is start relying again more and more, not on any individual uh, type of uh, um, 
single item slogans that sometimes circulate, but have trust in the public institutions that are exactly there to be able to assess this type of issues. And here the role of the FAO, the World Health Organization and other organizations is uh, extremely important. Now, once you do that, clearly the demand is about not only a relationship between prices and quantities, but above all is a reflection of tastes and preferences. And how these tastes and preferences change of consumers, we have seen it already. We don't need to start uh, speculating only about what will happen in the future. We have seen in the past changes in dietary patterns, not all of which, by the way, are moving in a direction that is necessarily linked to a healthier food. And this type of uh, changes in taste and preferences are not going to happen overnight. And there is a generational impact, there is a cultural impact, there is a regional and national impact. All of this we have to take into account. And that's where looking only at the consumer side and forgetting what happens at the uh, supply side is uh, should be a mistake because we need to create the environment where when farmers see that there are some changes in the trends, they manage to shift their uh, production in that direction. And we cannot accuse actually farmers for being market responsive when all this previous time we were trying to, uh, to make them be more price responsive. What we clearly uh, have leverage in uh, putting pressure on farmers is to make sure that no matter what these trends are, the, re the, the type of production they have is sustainable from an environmental point of view. Okay, let's turn back briefly to how certainly the farm to fork strategy and the Green New Deal are often seen by farmers, justly or unjustly, as a sort of fairly rules-based, restrictive set of instruments. However, I've, I've heard you said now a number of times that the Green New Deal, this the Common Agriculture Policy and Farm Fork, are supposed to be strategies. I was wondering how, if you could expand on that a little bit, how, how will these tools help European farm businesses and grow? Well, uh, you have, at least some people have heard me often making reference to the three successive agricultural outlook conference where we brought a young uh, farmer on agroecology, a young farmer on conventional farming, a young farmer on organic farming. These are all in the uh, arable and then the plant sector. Yesterday, you had two examples from the livestock sector. What we learned from this, that no matter what the practice, there are ways where people, farmers on the ground have found means of increasing their uh, yields and their economic performance and reducing significantly their environmental footprint. This is a concrete result. What does it do? Well, if you improve your income and your competitiveness and reduce your footprint, you have a positive income in, uh, in rural areas. And one of the things that we tend to forget is in the agricultural sector, unlike other sectors, the digitalization doesn't generate risks of people losing their jobs as farmers. It creates opportunities of people being farmers in a more knowledge-based way. It's not like the banking sector or the service sector where a machine or automation could replace you here. What automation and digitalization is going to do is going to make you more efficient as a farmer because there is a long-term downward uh, tr trend, which is actually 
linked by demographics. This is the reason why this uh, strategy is a growth strategy, especially in the agricultural sector, because it adds value and reduces the economic footprint. It shows that we can produce more with less in practice. Now, there is a clear issue of communication on that because there is fear and uncertainty and considerations out there. But in a sense, this is normal. When you are facing a, a major transformation in society and we are at a crossroads, the initial uh, the reactions are always uh, dominated by fear. That's why what is extremely important is make sure that there is no way back. And even if the initial process is a little bit gradual, there's going to be clearly an acceleration in the process the more we tend to communicate better uh, these type of results, which, by the way, are done among the farmers themselves. They see very well what their neighbors are doing, and they're the first ones that will jump in way before the policy uh, pushes them in that direction. I wanted to, we're coming closer to the end of the interview, but I wanted to briefly ask you about the current state of play of the CAP reform. The parliament has just passed the three main bills. Um, we're now going to head into trilogues. A number of the green organizations in Brussels have already stated displeasure with what they see as a less than ambitious CAP. Is there still room in this current moment now that trilogues are about to kick off? Can we still increase the ambitions of the CAP at this current moment, between now and, and the final settlement? Of course, there is always uh, more space. That's what the trilogues are uh, about. Uh, but to be able to do that, we need to be able to communicate better problem than what we have done. Uh, so far, the need and urgency of taking this action, which, by the way, everybody agrees, uh, agrees and accepts, but also how what we have put on the table practically uh, creates more opportunities than uh, actual uh, problems. I mean, there are challenges, there are opportunities where the balance will go depends to a very large extent on the much faster uh, incorporation in our day-to-day activities of these best practices. And this is why um, we want to stress the need to bridge the gap between those that have the knowledge and those that don't have the knowledge with strengthening farm advisory systems. Unfortunately, in the public debate, this is often forgotten, but that's the way to actually convince farmers that, yes, we're telling you you need to move in that direction, but here is the way to do it. At the end of the Food System podcast, we always ask the same question of everybody who participates, which is, if, if we were to give you one single point that you think would create a more sustainable food system, what would it be? One single advice or strategy? Uh, For me, it's quite some years now that I've been pushing that, and I was very glad that in DG Research, one of the missions is around soil. Because I think if we manage to improve the practices of soil management, simultaneously we have a very positive impact on what is happening in the air, in water, and biodiversity. And we have a policy that is based on area payments, on land, and that's the real leverage we have. So soil is my answer. Improvement in soil management. Soil is the answer. Uh, Tassos Haniotis, Director of Strategy, Simplification, and Policy Analysis at DG Agri. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today, as well as the conference yesterday. Thanks, Robert. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at Forum Fag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Music